Hey, Angela here. Before we begin this episode, I'd like to invite you to join our Substack community, where you'll get more founder profiles, exclusive behind-the-scenes content, first access to all my original work, and access to our community group chat. All you have to do is click the link in the description. I love and appreciate your support. It's awesome to see all your comments, email responses, and reactions. I'm happy to share this journey with you. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Honey and Hustle, a video podcast that inspires the dreamers, creators, and hustlers to make a business from their passions. I'm Angela Hollowell, and I'm a visual storyteller based in Durham, North Carolina. I sit down with creative entrepreneurs, nonprofit founders, and small business owners as they share their stories, the lessons they've learned throughout their careers, and how they've worked to make a positive impact. Hey everyone, we are filming season three of the Honey and Hustle podcast live at the Durham Bottling Co. right in downtown Durham. We're about to get into a great conversation, but before we do that, I'd really appreciate it if you take a moment to share this episode with someone who you think might get some value from it. Feel free to tag me on the podcast on social media, and I'll be sure to put those links on the video and in the description below. If you're listening to the show, please consider leaving us a review on Podchaser, Apple Podcast, or Spotify. It helps others find the show and lets me know how I'm doing at this video podcast thing. If you'd like to support the show, be sure to check out our affiliate links, shop our merch, and subscribe to the Honeypot newsletter and this YouTube channel, all at the links in the description. Without further ado, let's get into it. Appreciate you making the time to come out on a Friday afternoon to talk with me a little bit about you and your work and your organization. So, yeah, no problem. I'm excited. Yes, absolutely. So, uh, for people who are watching or listening, this is Dr. Rhonda Taylor. She is the executive director and founder of We Are. Um, so, I don't want to tell too much about you. Obviously, there's a doctor in front of your name, so that's a whole long story in itself. But that also lends itself to the story and origin of We Are. So, I would love to hear more about how that came to be. Yeah, sure. And I will add one thing. I actually, it felt good to you call me Dr. Rhonda Taylor because Taylor is my maiden name. Okay. And I, I go by Rhonda Taylor Bullock to honor mm-hmm. my uh, family mm-hmm. name. I'm also, my husband is a Bullock too. And so mm-hmm. rather than being called the other Bullock, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I use that. And because uh, he might say, why are you say your last, you know, the Bullock lesson? I digress. <laughs> but um, Dr. Rhonda Taylor Bullock, yes, I'm glad to be here. Glad. Mm-hmm for this opportunity to share more yeah. uh, about, you know, the work that we're doing. Yeah. Um, so with your PhD program, obviously PhD programs are super long. Um, and a lot of times when I think of going through a PhD program, what the outcome would be is typically either research or being um, a professor. So staying kind of in the academia realm rather than, oh, I'm going to start my own business or I'm going to start my own organization. So what was that like for you being in a PhD program and saying like, no, I think this is the route that I want to take? You know, I was an accidental uh, PhD student and then I became an accidental entrepreneur. That's some big accidents. (laughs) (laughs) Of all the accidents to have. Um, You know, and I didn't start out thinking that I was going to start a business. Like even the language of entrepreneurial, entrepreneurship or social justice you know, entrepreneur, like that, that language wasn't even my, in my vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I went into my PhD program, policy leadership and school improvement, thinking that I was going to gain research skills and research knowledge and use that as an elementary school principal. Mm-hmm. I wanted to disrupt the early literacy experiences of what was happening to black and brown boys mm-hmm. in elementary school, because at the high school level, I was teaching uh, incoming ninth graders, and so many of them could not read on grade level. So I went into my doctoral program thinking, I'm going to gain this re- these research skills, I'm going to better understand these early literacy experiences, and then I'm going to go be a dope elementary school principal, and I'm going to change some trajectories, right, for kids, and or at least try to have an impact. And in the midst of being in my doctoral program, I, oh my gosh, this is the fall of 2014, and at that point in our in our country, George Zimmerman had been acquitted okay. of murdering Trayvon Martin. Mm-hmm. Um, a white male police officer had murdered Mike Brown. Yes. And I'm in the fall. I'm, I start my career in, as a, a doctoral student as a mother of a three-year-old and a three-month-old. Mm-hmm. So I'm carrying that with me. 
And then I, I did my undergrad and master's at UNC and I started teaching at a historically black high school. So I was immersed in affirming black culture and identity. I'm like, this is it, right? Mm -hmm. And then I reemerged into this historically white space. And I was having racist experiences on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm. And so I kept thinking, this is happening to me. It's not happening to my classmates. It's not happening to my husband. You know, God, what are you trying to tell me? And so I started thinking about, um, in, my, in my research, I wasn't finding racism as a part of the reason right. black and brown kids were having uh, issues with literacy. And so I was like, you know, I'm having these experiences. If I, wanna, if I really want to study race and racism, which is my passion, then I should study it. So I, I very much centered um, critical race theory um, and critical whiteness studies hmm. because I wanted to start to think about, um, you know, what a, we think about how black and brown children respond to racism, but what about the perpetrators of, race, of racial harm? All of this is happening in my brain, mm -hmm. and I start to think about how I want to do anti-racism work on a much more systematic level, mm -hmm. and, and what would that look like? And when I come back to you know George Zimmerman, I think about him as an adult, and I'm like, what would have happened for the George Zimmermans of the world, at that moment, I was like, it's too late to mm -hmm. do anti-racism work for adults. Mm -hmm. um, it's not too late, but in that moment, I was like, it's too late. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what would it look like if we were to do, have an emphasis on helping children to develop healthy racial identities? What if we did anti-racism work and talked about skin color and identity and racism with young children. And so that's the idea that came to me first. Mm -hmm. Like what if we start earlier on having these conversations and helping children to be healthier, to better understand their race um, and identity. And then from there it was like, well, what if, um, if you're working with the children, you need to work with their parents too. So now I'm thinking, okay, I'm gonna do something for children. I'm gonna do something for parents. Mm -hmm. And then um, it, well, if you're working with children and parents, then you need to bring in the educators too. And so that's how we kind of came into this three-pronged approach. But it started with doing work with children. And the first thing, I really just thought I was going to do a program yeah. <laughs> and have do a summer camp for kids using books to help them think about race, racism, skin color, and activism. That's what I thought mm -hmm. I was going to do. And then somehow it became, well, let's call it, let's give it a name. Yeah. <laughs> now we need a logo because we need people to believe in this and think, take it seriously. Right. And, you know, things started to spiral and I... I reached out to my husband, who's a co-founder, um, Dr. Daniel Kelvin Bullock, and then I started reaching out to other people, like, I'm trying to do this thing. And again, I didn't really know what it was. I'm, I'm still thinking at this point, I'm going to be an elementary principal, yeah. and I'm just going to also do this. Right. You know, we, we, we're used to multitasking, doing right. many things, but that's kind of, that's kind of how it started. Okay. Uh, you used a lot of language that really, even for me as well, wasn't really present mm -hmm. and in the forefront of popular culture, let alone like, you know, subcultures within this country for right. until very recently in the last couple, like I would say, you know, five to seven years when you said things like anti-racist. So not just not being racist, but actively working against uh, relearning and unlearning certain past behaviors right. and past prejudices, right? Um, when you talk about being disruptive, like in your email signature, you say with disruptive peace, which I think is hilarious. But I also think like flips on this head, like I'm still being nonviolent, but I'm still being disruptive. I think there's definitely this element of people who, you know, they're like, okay, well you can protest, but just don't, you know, disrupt my right. life. But it's like, no, I need to, right. in order for you to hear me and to see me and to acknowledge me and what I'm saying. Um, so, and there, you know, again, for somebody who, got their master's in peace and human rights. I have a lot of thoughts about peace and the definition of peace, um, but also very much understand that peace and the fight for peace and the fight for justice should be disruptive. So right. I, I really understand that, but I've never put the two together in that way. Um, and then you also talked a little bit about identity and forming, having you know, language for younger generations of right. people to talk about identity and talk about their relationship with other people um, in a way that has scared a lot of people. Yeah. Has scared, is scaring a lot of people. And I think with the more language we come up with, unfortunately, 
uh, for better or for worse, I think the reality is that, you know, when we give things a name, we also give things a calling card. So yeah. for people who don't agree, it becomes like, oh, it's just this new thing. And it's like, no, it's always been around. We just have a name for it now. Right. Um, so also making that distinction in the popular culture when you're trying to advocate for certain things is really important. So uh, we're going to get to all of that at some point. But first, I guess we're going to dive more into um, really the connection between like your experience in education and the experience you wanted to create for people at a very young age. So not even waiting until they get to the PhD level right. of education, mm -hmm. but like from the onset, here is the relationship that you should come to expect from your education system as it relates to your relationship with your teachers, with your parents, and with your peers around just becoming a person. Right. Really becoming a person who is aware of our history, our correct and accurate and shared history, and what that means for you as you develop as a young person um, with reading and with other things. So uh, can you talk to me just a little bit about, you know, what that process was like? And when you did start reaching out to people and you said, hey, I'm trying to start this thing, what was some of the early feedback that you got from the work that you were doing? Yeah, I was very thoughtful about who I reached out to. Mm -hmm. And I uh, wanted to connect with people who already demonstrated an understanding of anti-racism work. Mm -hmm. And so these were folks who, were first it was like my husband, who we do this work together. And then it was colleagues, former colleagues, and really a lot of classmates that I was meeting in the doctoral program. I'm like, I've heard your comments in class. I feel like we're on the same page. Right. Here's this thing I'm trying to do. Mm -hmm. And you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, like some of this language is new. Mm -hmm. So if you go back to 2014, Anti-racism was not prominent. No. Talking about white supremacy was not mainstream rhetoric. No. Um, you know, and, and, and trying to be disrupt These things were not. So on, on the one hand, I was very strategic about who I asked because I was still fragile mm -hmm. in trying to, because I feel this is a calling. Yeah. And I'm still, I was still in a spirit of discernment, making sure I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. So I was fragile, mm -hmm. I think, and vulnerable, yeah. too, because I'm also carrying my own stories of harm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people sometimes will think you're crazy. Mm. And wrestling with my own um, folks who were close to me and, and mischaracterizing the work that I was doing. So it's very intentional about connecting with people whom I already knew I wouldn't have to explain the work to. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you I'm about to do this, and my expectation is that if you have capacity, you'll do it, but the reason you won't do it will be because of a capacity issue and not because you don't understand why this is relevant. Right. <laughs> and so I reached out to folks um, who were friends, who were in classes, some I had just met, and uh, by that point, I knew, I knew that this was different for folks, and so I, I first... I uh, reached out to my line sister who does marketing, um, Shannon Williams, and I said, Shannon, can you create a logo for me? This is the title I've come up with. This is the image I'm trying to work with. And she got a logo for me. Mm -hmm. And so um, I had another friend help me put a packet together. Mm -hmm. And... Um, because I felt like I did need to have something to make it a little more concrete and real mm -hmm. um, to help uh, buffer yeah. <laughs> you know, people's feelings toward it. And so initially, every person that I asked was like, yes, this is something we need to do and we'll do it. And I asked folks who were, um, we had a representation from the Latinx community, Jewish community, white community, black community, you know, um, people who were, who would be considered seniors, senior citizens, uh, people who were just right out of undergrad. And, you know, so it was, it was a diverse group of us coming together, um, people who were learned English as a second language. I mean, like, it was a diverse group, yeah. but it was everyone who already had an anti-racism framework. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's great. So you got like-minded people together, but still diverse people. And I think that's a good recognition and distinction now, because I think in a lot of times when it comes to jobs and working with people, you know, people want to hire people that are like-minded, mm -hmm. right? And sometimes that also means a like in everything else. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, like, and so it's good to have like they are like-minded but they also bring a different perspective right. of, of what it means to be anti-racist and their own experience with race and identity in this country so that's also um, great to hear and just great to see um, when it comes to you know you connecting your work with 
not only say connecting your work, but um, really taking advantage of the moment that we're in now as we have grown more into having these mm-hmm. conversations, you know, and using some of these language and some of these frameworks um, to start the conversation, to explain what it is you're doing and trying to accomplish, but also bring that down to a level where everybody can understand it anywhere, whatever their education level is. Um, what is that been like from like a nonprofit perspective? Because I think when I started my business in 2016, even then, people were saying like, hey, whatever your political views are, don't share them. Don't share them on social media, keep it to yourself, make your money, go home. You know what I mean? Try to be, and I, like that was also the way of like being palatable. Like try yeah. to be palatable mm-hmm. to people, right? But like I've seen your Twitter, that is... <laughs> <laughs> You are not worried about that at all. So, so what has that been like? I mean, I know there's probably people every once in a while that will come on there and like mess with you, but for the most part, it hasn't deterred you. No. So, so what has that that been like too? As you move forward with these, you know, diverse group of people, you know, you're gonna meet opposition. That's just naturally. So, like, what has that opposition been like as you've been trying to have these conversations? You know, initially when we first started. And I would get asked that question a lot. So a lot of people, are like, oh my God, you're doing this in schools? What is the pushback? And I'm like, it wasn't, it was non-existent. Really? It, it was, it was, I feel like it was uh, by purpose, by design. Yeah. But we were invited into spaces and so many doors were open for other, for whom others it was closed. Yeah. And I think one of the pieces of it is, was starting with relationships, people that I knew first. Yeah. Uh, and because I taught for almost 10 years, so I had a network of educators who already trusted me. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was part of it. But now, yeah. <laughs> you know, we're post the 2016 election. We're post Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, but we're, we're post that time period, but not the impact. Right. It's, a, it's a resonance, right? Mm-hmm. A, re- a residue. Yeah, we're past <laughs> January 6th. January, I mean, so you have all these other things. So in the midst of these forward-thinking, like, anti-racism moments, you have that white lash. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And so, and now in this moment, um, I had to make up in my mind that this work needs to be done regardless. Mm-hmm. I'm not beholden to your contract. I'm not beholden to your finances. Um, I'm gonna be unapologetic about this work. Mm-hmm. And because I know I, I, I stand on the word. Like I believe this is my calling. I believe that I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And that is, uh, and I have to do it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and that doesn't mean I'm right every time. I, I have to check myself, and other people will check me, and I'm like, you right. <laughs> you know, but I'm not going to let that deter me. And if you if you call Rhonda, <laughs> or we are, and you want we are to show up in the space, this is the package. Yeah. I don't do DEI work, and I'm, this is not a shot at DEI work. Anti-racism work and talking about white supremacy is very different from diversity, equity, inclusion, and that's okay. Right. But when you call me... Yeah. <laughs> I want you, I'm not going to shy away from what I believe I'm purposed to do. Mm-hmm. And if when I tell you what that is, if that's not where you all are, then that's okay. Right. And you need to find someone to meet you where you are and can, can take you all, you know, where you need to go. Um, now, I do meet people who, who aren't there yet, but they want to be there. anti-racism work. And mm-hmm. so I meet them where they are and we go together. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, eliminates some of that tension. And, and, I, and that's just what it is. I, I'm going to be who I am, and especially right now in this anti-CRT movement, anti-critical race theory movement. Mm-hmm. And you have a lot of people in education um, who really don't understand what CRT is, but because there's this you know, conservative push who's taken up a lot of space, they have a lot of microphone power, mm-hmm. um, and then people are like, well, we don't do CRT. We don't do, we don't do this in our schools. We don't teach that. And, I, and my response is, if you find a school that's leading with a CRT framework, you found a good thing. Yeah. Tell me where that is because that's where I want to send my child. Yeah. And so rather than, um, you know, we have in this, la- this later period, we have had some contract w- relationships and consultancies with like some school systems where they're like, oh, we can't, we can't pay for uh, critical race theory work. Okay, we can do critical race theory. So if, if you want to work with us, like, I'm going to tell you, this is what we're going to say. Right. And so if this doesn't work for you, fine. It does, you know, on the one hand, I'm like, well, cool. We're going to keep going where people understand the work and that's where we're going to be. And at the same time, it's like, you don't even understand 
You don't know what it is. You don't know what it is, and you're allowing these people who have a loud mouth, you know, to put, to taint. This is such, critical race theory is such important work. Mm -hmm. It's truth telling, you, what you were saying, mm -hmm. rooted in, this is reality, this is our truth, this is mm -hmm. our history. Mm -hmm. um, and so I try not to defend critical race theory. I try to pretty much say, this is what it is and this is what we do. Yeah. And these are the benefits of it. So. Right. Um, so one thing I do wanna say before I go into that next question is you made a really good distinction between DEI work and anti-racism work. So to me, DEI, honestly was made within the context of the workplace because that's where majority of mm -hmm. people spend majority of their time um, and in school as well because you spend a lot of time mm -hmm. in school so those are kind of the two places where DEI was kind of frameworked in right. where that was meant to go to provide inclusive and healthy workspaces um, the thing about in my mind about anti-racism is anti-racism is not necessarily about creating diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. This is about acknowledging mm -hmm. all the ways that we as people, not just as workers, not just as students, but people have maybe not acknowledged our privilege in the past. We have not correctly acknowledged our history and how that affects us now in the present. Right? So I feel like that is a different step from working towards building a healthy workplace in that anti-racism is actively working to be a better person mm -hmm. and to be a better neighbor and to be a better citizen and to be a better accommodator who is respectful of other cultures and that sort of thing. Right. And, um, to, and to have better systems. Right. Right. And yeah. so how do we look at our, how do we look at the school system? How do we look at this job right. and now apply this framework and to do better? Yeah. Because racism too is the misconception is like, this is an individual thing. This is right. like, no, like this is embedded into our systems and our institutions. And until those things changed, the work on the ground will not change. So, um, going back to that CRT, we're going back to anti-racism frameworks and, um, peace building, if you will, what are some ways, like, straight up, a lot of people who probably, like, are railing against CRT or just, like, this type of education system, they're not reading books. They're not reading, like, they're not, they're, they haven't read the 1619 no. Project. They haven't read, like, other books that would educate them about, like, race and identity. They haven't read Hood Feminism. They haven't read. Oh, my like, gosh. Oh, I love that book. You know, you know? No, they didn't. They didn't. They're not reading that, you know? So, like, if adults aren't reading that, like, how are you bringing that topic to them too who they're probably not going to go home and do homework after this like how are we addressing like the gap that lies between like young people and their parents yeah because most people are reading tweets and facebook posts yeah you know and headlines yeah. and not the articles right right and so what we're doing is creating these spaces where learning can happen. Mm -hmm. And so some of the, what we do at We Are is we have these outward facing public events and we're inviting people in to come to learn. Um, and then we make ourselves available for businesses, organizations, parent-led organizations, community-led organizations to invite us into their space to have this shared learning experience. Um, sometimes we are asked, but what are you doing about those folks over there, the ones who won't come? Or mm -hmm. and so what I and one of the ways that I respond to that is those people are not our responsibility. Right. Um, I tell people whoever the people who are meant to be in this room are here. Mm -hmm. And um, that we all need this learning. You can be the most well-intentioned person and still be contributing to harm and still upholding right. white supremacy in our practices. And we are. We yeah. do this. Mm -hmm. And so making. And so what I tell folks is that those people are your responsibility. After you leave here, because you're going back because those people, because you know them. They're in your community. They're at your dinner table. They're at your cookouts, your pig picking, or whatever you're eating, or whatever your churches, yeah. your HOA board. Yeah. Um, now, your job is to take this knowledge because you have a relationship because oftentimes the ways to be in community with those people to learn is you need to have a relationship with them. Mm -hmm. And so we tell folks that that's your responsibility. You go out back into your community with those people mm -hmm. who might be family, who might be friends. And now you're a part of doing this education. That's the work you carry. And I want to racialize that. Like, I really tell that to white folks. Like, that is your job mm -hmm. to go back and be in community and have those conversations. You do not get to 
close your door and say, in my house, we're doing a good thing. And it's those, we're different from those white people over there. Right. And so I like to tell them very directly, no, that is your responsibility. Right. No, <laughs> that, that makes so much sense. And then in the business world, what you really did was like, you are my target audience, right? If you believe and are moved so much by this product that we're giving you, this education, this learning, go and tell other people about it. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's the best. That's word of mouth is the best referral. Having these conversations is the best referral. You know, when somebody, let's say white, comes to an event that you're hosting and then they go back in their community with their cousin, who probably is a big, let's say, a big Trump supporter or whatever. Or, you know, and you're having these conversations with them. It's not about beating them over the head and asking them to come to an event. It's about saying, well, this is what I've learned recently. This is what I believe. And this is what I'm hearing from you when you say this. Right. So change, small changes in behavior that prompts people to just think. Right. To just think more deeply about what they're saying and the things that they are doing with their actions. It's like you say you're not racist, but. Mm -hmm. And this is what you do. And I do want to I do yeah. want to say that doesn't mean that everybody it's with whom we come into contact <laughs> with is agreeable or, or uh, understands the work that we're doing. Yeah. So sometimes we were in spaces where a whole staff was made to come uh, to the workshop yeah. Or we're in a space where someone thought they were on an anti-racism journey, and then when they got there and started learning and feeling uncomfortable, they were not as far along as they thought they were. Yeah. Um, so we do get pushback mm -hmm. within sessions, um, within the spaces where we were invited to come or people willingly came themselves. So I do want to put that caveat out there that we do get pushback. Yeah. We do have to stop people. We do have to say you've taken up enough space and we're going to stop this conversation right here. Okay. Like, and that, and that does happen, um, you know, from time to time. And, mm -hmm. you know, as facilitators, we just try to be prepared for it mm -hmm. and be conscious of it because sometimes things can happen and you're, and it might catch you off guard. Mm -hmm. And so you're not able to respond in the moment, but we do have conversations around that as a staff. So if you hear this, then do this, right. you know, so we, we do try to be prepared for when that does come up in our, in our spaces. Yeah. So two things we, well, one thing we talked about before we got to roll in here, and one thing that I do want to address about you being a nonprofit founder is that, you know, with business, when people think about business, and nonprofits are a business, in my point of view, you know, we think about, you know, how many sales can I make versus how much impact can I have? Mm -hmm. So that's one distinction between nonprofits and for-profit businesses. The other thing is I kind of see nonprofits as like education as a service right. type deal. Right. So for people who own service based businesses, they're coaches, they're consultants, they're speakers, what have you. And you have these moments where people think they're ready to have a conversation, think they're ready to experience transformation, which is one of the biggest, I would say, selling points of mm -hmm. having someone like you and we are come in to a space and do something is, man, I want to I want to be a change person. I want this to have an impact on me. I want this to you know, just drive me to be better and do better mm -hmm. in my mm -hmm. community and teach me something about myself that can help me be better and contribute better as a person. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's great to go into space and want that from a service-based professional and to have confidence that they can deliver. Right. Right. The other half of that is when you as a facilitator have to say, uh, I'm also here to take up space because I'm qualified to take up space <laughs> because my lived experience is, is valid. Um, and because I also want to help people really reach within themselves and look at their own lives and see yeah. what lived experiences they have had that maybe they experience differently now that they have new language to describe certain things. Um, so as you're going through this and you're kind of thinking about it like that, um, funding also inevitably comes to mind. Right. So you are funded differently than a for-profit. Do you feel comfortable talking about it? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so one of the things... So initially, um, I applied for a social entrepreneurial uh, grant at UNC Chapel Hill through their um, Campus Y. It was called Cube, mm -hmm. and it was like an incubator space. Mm -hmm. And I was very, it, I didn't even realize, but I was very uncomfortable with being labeled um, as a business owner it, because of everything we've been conditioned to believe and the harm mm -hmm. and that this is a business. And... Um, it is a business, right. and and you you have to be able to stay afloat to, to do the work that you want to do. And so I I also realized that the 
the business, that language um, has been stereotypically white male centric and there's been just lots of harm. Mm -hmm. And so we got to decolonize what does it mean and, and then reimagine what it means to be a social entrepreneur or a business person. Correct. And so so I'll say that at first because it definitely made me really uncomfortable at first. I'm, I don't know, I'm not a business owner. <laughs> um, I just run a business. <laughs> but when it comes to funding, you know, um, and when you think about nonprofits, you think about doing work for free, yeah. you know, and grants and all this other kind of stuff. And one of the things, and I don't even know where this came from, and then I believe it was divine intervention. Like I knew that uh, I needed to charge people for our services. Okay. So the services that we offer, so we first started with um, a conference. Um, the Less Taught Racism Conference, which is the one we just wrapped up in March. Um, when I was an undergrad at UNC, I was a part of a, uh, a collective of educators who had received like the North Carolina Teaching Fellow Scholarship. And so they, some of the old, some the more seasoned folks who were there when I was there started something called the Less Taught Race Conference, Racial Attitudes and Conversations in Education. That's what race stood for. And so I knew that conversation needed to come back. Mm -hmm. um, so working with my partner and our friends and stuff, and we want to do a Let's Talk Racism conference. And so I knew we had to, we had no money. <laughs> We're not about to have no conference and invite a speaker. These speakers out here charging thousands of dollars. Yeah. You got to feed them. They got to have print, you know, and, and it's like, you can't do this for free. Right. And so I knew from, and also people also value things that they pay for. Mm -hmm. um, but in the education space, we wanted to be accessible to where if an educator did not get support from their school system to come, could it still be financially feasible mm -hmm. for them to participate? And so that first year of the conference, now we had some seed funding from CUBE. We built a partnership with the Sammy Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke. Okay. So they um, put out some seed money for this conference to happen, but then we also charged people. Mm -hmm. And then from there, we did a summer camp. Okay. You can't host summer camps for free. Like it's like it's really hard. Like if you you can't host some, a lot of people have free summer camp programming, but then you now you got you got these people out here doing this work, and then you can't pay them for it. Mm -hmm. So it was I knew we need to have some fees associated with the work that we did, and that's kind of in some ways it's it's not um, what you get from traditional grassroots nonprofit organizations, right? Mm -hmm. And, and, and in particular, if you're working with marginalized communities, it is hard. Right? We, don't have the, the, we don't have that excess income. Right. And so, um, so on the one hand, I knew that we need to charge people for things, at least the people who could pay. Mm -hmm. um, like with our camp, we offer full and partial scholarships, which means we have to bust our you know, <laughs> rear ends to, to cover the funds for them. Mm -hmm. um, and then you know, we have a right grants okay. to try to keep us afloat. But you know what? When we first started, because remember, we go back, I said anti-racism work. People were still scared of it. People kept calling me radical this and radical that. And why you got a black fist in your logo? And, and I, that, I did get some of that. Okay. Um, and uh, we had to, the grants were not coming. Mm. It was the people. The people on the ground who trusted me, with whom I already had relationships with, um, and then word of mouth, it's five and ten dollar donations that kept us afloat, and also like our board that uh, our board was also my co became colleagues, yeah. and many of us were working for free. Yeah. It was a lot. It was a lot of donated time to start to get us off the ground because we could not compensate people, and they didn't want to be compensated. Like I think that's beautiful how how giving they were, mm -hmm. um, but we were able to raise funds through donations, um, and then, you know. One grant here, one grant there, but then after the world witnessed Officer Chauvin murdering George Floyd, mm -hmm. then people were like, oh, wait, racism. We're not post-racial. No. Barack Obama didn't. Cure racism. Cure racism. <laughs> you mean Barack Obama didn't cure racism? But I voted for him. What do you mean? I can't be racist. And so <laughs> the flood of donations... I'm telling like the average, our average donation is probably like $15. Yeah. And then, but it was a lot of, it was a lot of people believing in us. And I think that's such a blessing mm -hmm. that the ground, that the, the people of us and during this grassroots, the people closest to the pain and the problems, like we were funding this work. Um, then we started getting business donations. And so they're throwing in more money. Like we ain't, we're not financially comfortable. Mm -hmm. We're financially comfortable. We're not above, like we still have to do work and apply for grants and things. But those, um, that's kind of how the, our finances have worked. Like we've, we've definitely, we're like, we went from one being able to we couldn't even afford one person. Like I was <laughs> running the organization full time, 
And I, from a place of privilege, because my husband had a full-time job with the school system, so I want to name that. Um, but then after, uh, in 2020, for one, I went to my, my board and I said, y'all, I can't do this work by myself no more. By myself, meaning being the one person in the office running the business. Right. Like There's a difference between being on the board and running the business. One person cannot run this business anymore. The demand is too great, and we need to raise some funds. And it just so happened the year that we had committed to trying to push ourselves to raise $100,000 so we can get colleagues. Mm-hmm. Um, we went live with our fundraiser, and then like right after that, Chauvin murdered George Floyd. Okay. And so I want to uplift that we benefited off the backs of black and the black bodies. And, and, I, and I want the community to know we're doing what we should be doing mm-hmm. with that, right? Yeah. And so... Um, then we hired three new people. Now we're office of four. Nice. You know, and, and, and doing more and then recognizing we can use four more people. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's good. I think, man, I don't even know. I, we can get into it a little bit if you feel comfortable. But there recently, when, for people watching, listening, we are recording this in April. Um, and so if you pay attention to this space at all, the Black Lives Matter movement, Black Lives Matter movement has been under fire recently um, because they too have benefited um, in terms of donations from the lives of black and brown people who have been in the news. Um, And they recently came under fire because it came out that they had this like mansion, this $6 million mansion that was funded through donations in New York that like nobody was using. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of the founders and people who were in leadership there have come out trying to like reconcile with that and like maybe explain why it exists um and they've received a lot of pushback because people are like okay this is cool that you wanted to create this hub and this incubator but you know ferguson also wanted to do a community center and y'all denied them that money and you know as a nonprofit, people are giving to you you know we expect a return on that mm-hmm. right even if you if you came out and said you know we've been paying people with this we've been doing all these things i would be one thing Right. But, you know, the founders kind of came out and said, well, you know, just straight up, like we weren't really prepared to run a nonprofit. And the amount of money that we got in the time span that we got it was just absolutely insane. We didn't know what to do with Mm -hmm. it. And that is really hard. I know that was hard for them to admit that they made a mistake Um, and they leverage people's trust in them and have benefited from that. I don't know what's going on with the space. I don't really know. You know, they said that things were happening and that the space they got required a lot of renovations, so that's why a lot of the money went. But $6 million is still $6 million. You know what I'm saying? Like, imagine what you could do with $6 million. <laughs> you, know I mean? like, you know, that could go to a lot of different things. But um, people do, to an extent, especially with nonprofits, too, because people feel like those what is happening with the funds should be publicly available right. and that you, as well as, like other business owners, should be beholden to your constituents and to your your audience and to the people who have supported you. Um, Like, what has... I don't even know. Like, I don't know if you're interested in giving your take on that or, like, what you have kind of done to increase transparency within your nonprofit. Yeah, I will say I don't know enough to speak from a well-informed perspective. Um, I do know that it is very hard to run a nonprofit, especially when uh, you're getting, when you didn't even know that that's what you were doing in the first place. I don't think that excuses anyone, but I will say is that that's probably a nuanced, complicated situation, and I hope that um, truth and transparency emerges from this and it doesn't detract from Black Lives Matter. Right. Right, and so that's what I'll say But there. I definitely think it does. I And I hate to say it, but I definitely think the sentiment that I've seen is like, how can we trust this? Yeah, right. and that's that's really hard because they they can't, they were coming under fire since like day one. You know, people were yeah. like really upset, and now you have years later this more than anything probably is this juggernaut of an accusation that feeds into to, some yeah. of the critiques that people yeah. had of you. Yeah, and you just hate it because like there's people we're still being harmed. Yeah, you know, and and it makes it hard for people to trust us because mm-hmm. we're already black and brown and women and trying to do this work and um but yeah I, I think I, I need to better understand get more information on yeah. the story and, yeah. and make sure that 
I learn <laughs> from what they're doing. So on our end, um, with truth and transparency, we're, we're learning. What does that look like um, as a business organization, right? I, I did a, a video when I first started the nonprofit, and I, I was just saying that, like, the learning curve is sharp. This is completely new for me. Financial feasibility wasn't in my vocabulary <laughs> before when I was teaching high school English. Yeah. You know, um, but I will say on our end, um, being honest, showing people what we're spending. When we raise funds, this is what we're raising funds for. Right. So when we have put out that $100,000 like fundraising goal, we're trying to hire three people. And then people are like, Rhonda, you can't pay three people with $100,000. Like, I know, but it feels wrong to ask for more. But it, once we get them on, they, were, they are uh, fund generating positions mm -hmm. so then they will be able to supplement hopefully you know the the income because we'll be able to take on more consultancy and so we didn't have to raise all three of their salaries in that one fundraiser mm -hmm. um and then we're working on like understanding like impact reports and then in addition to impact reports showing this is what we raised this is and this is how we're spending the money mm -hmm. and um we're hoping to have our first impact report out but it costs money to have an impact report and you know we're, we're getting there it is a process uh, even though we've been doing this officially like as an organized body since 2015 our, the majority of our board were also full-time PhD students when we first started. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, so I, this just became my sole full-time job, I think, in 2018. Okay. So, but then it, even so, when, even with what we have now, we're always saying this money is going towards scholarships for kids uh, for our summer camp. And then we tell people, you know, like these are the number of scholarships that we've been able to cover. Um, but I think we, we have room to grow. Mm -hmm. And I do feel I appreciate um, and I, I named this a lot, the trust that people have in us. And I would not want to do anything. Let me say we're not about to buy. I don't. OK, that feels like a judgmental statement. We. I appreciate the trust that the people put in us, and I don't want to do anything to damage that trust because so much of us even being here built. was built on trust. Mm -hmm. um, and so we are, I'm better understanding what transparency looks like there. Because as a teacher, it was, here's my grade book. Yeah. <laughs> and here are my lesson plans. And, you know, and here's my call log. And I, I'm trained and I understand that I need to do that. And so in this space, um, I'm learning a lot. I've made a lot of mistakes. I, I've had a lot of lessons learned. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and hope that we have a demonstrated history of improvement, mm -hmm. of, of trying to do better. Um, and I think, I think that's how we, you know, you own, own up to when you've made a mistake and then show how because none of us are perfect. I could still be in this moment saying all of these things and go back and recognize I've made a financial error. We have to own it and then um, reconcile the situation. This is what I'm doing mm -hmm. to fix it. Um, and that's kind of how we try to operate. Yeah. No, that's good. Um, one thing I will say to Black Lives Matter credit, which is why I don't have heavy critiques of them publicly or otherwise really, is because at one point when Black Lives Matter first started, was a lot about the protest and the awareness and that sort of thing. And people who were not advocates or proponents of Black Lives Matter were saying, okay, well, you made all this noise, but now what? Mm -hmm. You know, what, you know, that's not the only job of a nonprofit. And are you saying that only Black Lives Matter? And they had to kind of go back and do some of that, like, business building, like, no, this is intersectional, it's not just Black Lives you know, it is black and brown people, it's queer people, it's all these right. other things. All um, black lives Right, matter. right. Mm -hmm. And going to talk, you know, more deeply about what they believe and really having to go back and do some business building, foundation building, rather than just, like, capacity building. So having all these chapters and stuff. Um, so that was number one. They had to, they did have to go back, but they did do the work. And then the second thing they did was they started doing more policy kind of direction. So trying mm -hmm. to craft and propose policy that would in turn, increase systemic change. So, like, um, in terms of that, there was some things that, like, again, they also had to learn on the fly. Like, yeah. it's not just about getting people out in the streets and social media hashtags and stuff. It's also about, like, what does this mean at the end of the day for all these people who are acknowledging and recognizing what's happening on the policy level, on the systemic level that is 
intersectional racism. But yeah, that's just. It's a lot. And, um, and that, that, you know, another thing that was intimidating to me, and I can name this, and <clears throat> starting We Are, people kept talking to me about scale. How are you going to scale this? How are you right. going to? Because that's business language. Right. Um, and I was like, I'm not trying to scale. <laughs> and what do you mean? It, it felt overwhelming. And also, I do understand, like, I didn't, I, my prayer was, I don't want to stifle We Are's impact because of my fear of growth. And, you know, because people are like, oh, you could do this worldwide, you could do this. And I'm like, that feels overwhelming. And it's a lot. Like, you can't just, I've tried to be more methodical in our growth and more thoughtful because I believe in building relationships. You can't bring a hundred people in and expect you about to have deep relationship because I think this work is deeply relational, is deeply personal, is deeply personal to me because of my racist ex encounters that I've had. Um, and you know, people are like, we want to be in this state and do this. I'm like, actually, I don't. I want to grow deep relationships here. I want to have um, a triangulate. I want to have a community like Durham. I feel like we are able to have that touch all three of our triangles, mm -hmm. right? Children, families, and educators. Like we're trying to grow deep here. And I also recognize the need for this work to expand. I mean, we've, we're already working throughout the state. Mm -hmm. um, and I will say because of COVID and Zoom, we, we, we have an international reach. Um, but the goal isn't to be international. The goal is to be disruptive. Mm -hmm. The goal is to challenge white supremacy. And so we're trying to do that in a gradual way, um, recognizing our own capacity. Because when you start to think of the whole of this, it's overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And it's taxing. Um, we've built in, um, and I, I don't have a good work-life balance. I'm working on it. Yeah. Not, <laughs> Aren't not we all? Jesus Christ. It's not, not the model. But I will say, in bringing colleagues in, they helped me to see how I was doing the absolute most. Because they were like, we can't go and do this seven days a week like you're doing, Rhonda. Like, oh, I had y'all working seven days. It wasn't seven. It was about six, though. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you're right. Oh, I shouldn't be doing this either, huh? But when you're trying to get something started, you know, that's kind of where you are. You're just trying to, you're trying to keep it going. Mm -hmm. um, but you have to um, check growth. Mm -hmm. and, and is growth, growth wasn't my goal. Impact, like we, where we started, you know, impact was the goal. And I do believe in ripple effects and being able to share uh, this education that we've co-created and get it out to a broader audience, but in due time. Right. And, and people can ask me, what's your five-year plan? What's your five-year plan? My, first of all, <laughs> didn't have a plan for this. You know, and I say, well, you know what? Uh, God gave me this vision. And when he's ready for me to have a five-year plan, then he'll give it to me. And I told I don't know my five-year plan. Yeah. And actually, I'm bothered you keep asking me. That's that business world. <laughs> We're going to be in five years. I, I, I don't know. Now, I will say uh, last year, I did feel a little clarity around five years out. And then we, <clears throat> I kind of spoke to, to our team and shared with the team, this is what I think we should be doing over the next five years. And that came to me, I think that was year six for us. Mm -hmm. So now I'm ready to speak to, because the vision came to me. So I, I'm not trying to force something that's not there. And I kind of appreciate how God gave me that grace to say, I don't have to have a five year plan if I don't want to. Mm -hmm. And I'm confident in telling you that, you know, as y'all keep asking me this. Yeah. No, that's <laughs> that's hilarious. But I do think, like, when you think about growth, it has to come back to your why. Is your growth always tied to money? Is that your only goal, just to, like, make a bunch of money by year five or whatever this mm -hmm. is in your, your five-year plan? Like, or is it to do something else? And mm -hmm. I think sometimes, too, that's, like, you know, people will say, you know, they look to these like arbitrary numbers like oh how I made a million dollars by 30 years old or how I did and it's like okay that's cool I mean it's, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that but that doesn't mean that just because you didn't make a million dollars a year by 30 that you have a bad quality of life or that you're not successful in your own right or you're not yeah. accomplishing the goals that you set for yourself like you know so it's kind of like we have to and I say this too I mean I see it on Twitter I see it in a lot of you know, mainstream podcast type stuff is like, or just business type stuff is like, we have to let go of these arbitrary goals. Yeah. You know, we got to let go of this, whatever we think we're supposed to have by a certain age or by yeah. a certain time in business. It's like everybody's path is different. And really, as long as you're chugging away at the goals that you have for yourself, right? then that's what needs to be the most important. Not this, whatever number that people are throwing out there that you feel like you're supposed to have. 
Yeah, and we in our organization we try. We have some like some awesome colleagues too, um, and we're we're trying to create a workspace that none of us have ever experienced. Mm. We're reimagining what a healthy work environment looks like. Also recognizing that we're we're carrying toxic. Uh, we've been trained in toxic workspaces and toxic culture, so we have to check our toxic culture that we're bringing because it's normalized for us and it's out of habit. And then we ha we're having to reimagine together what a healthy workspace looks like. One of the things that I'm proud of that we, we came to the conclusion of was that um, one of my colleagues, uh, Sierra, she said that, you know, we're on the front lines of white supremacy. And you need a break from that. Yeah. And so when we have multi-day events, um, the next day is a wellness day. Okay. We're, we're taking time off. Um, I did realize with the conference, so we all had the following Monday off, but we worked on a Saturday. We need, our, we need to recoup that time, too, that was for our, our family, our friends, or just for ourselves. Mm -hmm. So now next year, we're like, we're going to have that Monday and that Tuesday off. Yeah. Because you, we need that rest. We need our wellness day, and we also need our weekend day back because we, you know, we traditionally work during the week. And so um, just prioritizing health yeah. and wellness in ways that that's not the norm or the culture for a lot of organizations. You know, some people have already found that truth and decolonized that aspect of working. And, and so we're stumbling along and, and we're um, having conversations to help us um, figure out what makes sense for us. Yeah. And that's important too, just like, again, going against the grain of saying like, well, this is what a social entrepreneur is. And it's like, well, no, this is what we do because <laughs> this is what's worked best for us. Um, and that manifests itself in different ways, for sure, uh, whether that's a four-day work week or, like you said, just taking mm -hmm. a mental health day, which would be just a non-starter for <laughs> a lot of jobs even now. Right, It's right. just like, I need a day for what? To be away from you. Right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah cause it's preposterous that we could have a life outside of work. And I think, too, like you were saying, like you have to learn, and myself, probably people watching this, too, is like you are not your work. Like, yeah. there needs to be some distinction. There needs to be some separation. There needs mm -hmm. to be some, like, break from this. So, yeah, I think that's yeah. a good note to end on. I appreciate you so much for coming in today. Yay. I had a great time. I did, too. <laughs> Can you tell people how to find out more about We Are um, online? Yes. Yeah, you can. Yeah. <laughs> this is, like, real time. Um, please visit our website at weare-nc.org. You can follow us on social media at we are underscore O-R-G. And we love to engage uh, with folks um, on, through social media. You can also email our office at admin, A-D-M-I-N, at weare-nc.org. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. <laughs>